I'm Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. Obviously coming at you remote once again. <laughs> if you haven't noticed. That one wasn't as bad, I don't think. I guess we'll we'll find out on the playback, but yeah, I don't know why it's so bad. It's like wine, you guys. Every time we age with, never mind. We get better with with age. Thank you. <laughs> I'm every so tired. Age. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, hello, lovely people. We hope you are all doing fantastic. Yes. I'm hoping you all enjoyed our surprise oh, microbrew. Nice micro yeah. yeah. Thank you, Brittany, for that last week. Absolutely. You guys, the response to it on my heart is just so warm. You know, that's yeah, me. it's gotten like it's gotten a lot of um of views. It's it's reached like those posts have reached a lot of people and they've been shared a lot which I couldn't is... believe how many were shared like before the episode even came out yeah 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 it's amazing so um we love that it's definitely something that is ongoing so it's really important just to continuously draw awareness to it um so I mean it's really exciting and and Brittany obviously we can't thank you enough for for bringing that to light well, you're um, welcome. especially you guys. on red dress day so yes um, and thank yeah, you guys you make episode. you make the conversation really easy to have I love you ladies so thank you once again as well or Mickey Witch <laughs> ain't no thing <laughs> Andrew <laughs> it is wing Wednesday it is oh Let's not talk about wings. I'm hungry. Megs, what are you bringing us today? Yeah, Megs, I'm so excited. So before we get into it, does anybody have any true crime news they want to share? Anything like that? Lori Valley. Lori Valley is up for the death sentence. She like they're they've decided to go for the death sentence for her. Really? That crazy. Lori Vallow? Yeah, whatever her name is. (laughs) Let's remember I'm very tired. And yeah, so sure. I can't speak well on a good day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Neither can I. That is wild. We'll yeah, have that, to keep watching that, that one. I know for sure. Brian Laundry's parents knew whereabouts of Gabby Petito's body lawsuit says. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. New details have surfaced in the lawsuit. They knew their son had killed her and knew the whereabouts of the body. That's so awful. Yeah. They're going to get theirs. Yep. Yeah. Thank you guys for sharing that true crime news. I actually, while searching uh, cases online, found that i'm not sure if you guys are aware but i wasn't aware but did you know that may 25th is national missing children's day in the united states no i didn't know that i didn't know that i think i've seen it along the lines of all my searching through mm-hmm. everything i searched through but i don't know a lot on it 
Yeah, well, it's 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 we're in Canada, for our listeners that uh, don't know us, but it is it it is specific to the United States. It was actually like um, it's actually a national like day for them wow. there, not here in Canada, but doesn't matter. We are going to. I'm going to share some statistics here because my case, I actually wrote this before I found all this information about the National Missing Children's Day, but it fits in perfectly considering it is now May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good timing. Uh, but just some, I'm going to throw out some statistics there. But in the United okay. States alone, an estimated of 460,000 children are reported missing each, each year. In oh Canada, God. yeah, in Canada, that number is more than fifty thousand. What? When? Yeah, when you take into consideration the population of the United yeah, States so. versus the population of Canada, like that's a huge number. Yeah. yeah. But most are found safe. A quarter, a quarter are usually uh, runaways or voluntarily missing, and more than half of missing children cases are solved within twenty four hours. 92% in the first seven days. Wow. Wow. I think we are all familiar now. If you have a mobile device, you certainly are now, um, of the Amber Alert program. Mm-hmm. So it yes. wasn't, yeah, so it wasn't, it was uh, 1996 is when um, the United States first uh, was talking about bringing in an Amber Alert program. And it wasn't until 2002 that it was established in both Canada and the United States. The Amber Alert program was established to provide the public with immediate and up-to-date information about a child's abduction via widespread media broadcast on television and radio, and in more recent years, as we all know, mobile devices. Yeah. Love those mobile device alerts. Here, I do love that. Right? They scared the, the test test one today. today. Yeah, yeah. Like it scared the shit out of me. I know. I was like, oh no, my I was heart watching a crime thing. show and it was quiet and in the show, and then all of a sudden it was like, wee, and I'm like, holy fuck. No. My heart sank into my butt. I was, I was like this looking at a conference call, and all of a sudden it went like that, and it was right beside my face. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah, it's crazy. Um, I just want to quickly say that, like, I remember when they first launched it and people were actually, like, complaining about it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, like, oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, I never like, understood it. No, I don't like talking negatively about people, but that is something that has always really pissed me off. It's like, how could you, like, who fucking cares if it's, whatever time of the day it is there is a child like your inconvenience your inconvenience this child's whole entire family is inconvenienced because it's literally fucking missing so as we know the first 48 hours are the most crucial right in any missing person's case or murder case or whatever yeah exactly <laughs> we keep going back to this there is a show on it anyways i digress amber alert can only be activated by the police And before doing so, they will conduct a thorough investigation and collect information necessary to issue it. Here, the criteria is... I like it. As recommended by the Department of Justice. Um, Obviously, it varies. It's it's just kind of like a, a baseline. It varies from province to province, state to state. 
So the criteria is that one, there is reasonable belief by law enforcement that an abduction has occurred. Two, the law enforcement agency believes that the child is in immediate danger or serious or of serious bodily harm or death. Three, there is enough descriptive information about the victim and the abduction for law enforcement to issue an Amber Alert to assist in the recovery of the child. Four, the abduction is of a child aged 17 years or younger. Um, it is obviously different in Alberta, uh, in, yeah, in Alberta because it's 18, because that's our legal, that's kind of where Canada thinks that you become an adult, whereas I guess in the States, 17. Um, yeah. And the last one is the child's name and other critical data elements, including the child abduction flag has been entered into the National Crime Information Center, so NCIS system. Of course, again, I got this information from the Department of Justice, so this is specific to, it would be whatever Canada's equivalent is, which I can't think of the name of it right now, but we do have the same thing here. So I kind of looked at a couple of provinces, and it's more or less the same, uh, followed by law enforcement in Canada and the U.S. They, they do, according to their website, that's the criteria that they follow. But we can probably all think of a dozen or more cases where we're scratching our heads wondering why an Amber Alert had not been issued. Yeah. Like yeah. we even were discussing one earlier today um, on in our Facebook group. Oh, Frank Young. <laughs> okay, hang on. Okay. Yeah, they um, in Saskatchewan, they have, or Saskatoon, I guess it would be, Frank Young, that five-year-old boy that's missing. They never did an Amber Alert for him. Yeah, and I'm sure that he does. I'm sure he meets the criteria. Like I, I can't even fathom what would be missing where they'd be well, like, no. Two weeks. You would do yeah. sometime in two weeks he would fall under that criteria. It's yeah. So, it's difficult when, like, there's just, I mean, a lack of transparency um, when it comes to, like, the reasoning behind it like why you would issue one for one child and not for another, like in like to be transparent to the public as to why. I mean, yeah. I don't know what it takes to do that or even if that's possible, but I mean, it just leaves us questioning. And especially when you're talking about indigenous and like, you know, we're already fighting for, you know, indigenous rights as it is, you know, it just kind yeah. of throws gas on the fire, so to speak. So yeah, the most common form of abductions of children in both the U.S. and Canada um, are parental child abductions. Yeah. So again, that could play a factor into whether or not they choose to put an Amber Alert out because it really does come down to custody agreements. Right. So it's really, there's really a fine line between whether it's considered an actual abduction or not if the parent that has abducted the child has the legal right to have the child. So that's uh, kind of what bothers me because you're you're right. You're absolutely right. In fact, I can, I think the last three or four Amber Alerts I've had on my phone have been exactly that apparent. And so it's like, 
it, it could be as simple as in the contract agreement when they separated or divorced that he's only supposed to have him or she's only supposed to have the child for a day and he runs off that afternoon and something like that would get an Amber Alert whereas a young boy gone missing for no explainable reason doesn't. And I think that's where what needs to be addressed because yeah. you're painting... I feel like it's painted too similarly with one paintbrush right now and you need to go off of the individual and the life like like who they are a five-year-old going missing right no this is the perfect segue into my episode because the case that I will be highlighting today is that exactly it was, all, um, this took place in 1996, so it was six years prior to when they implemented the Amber Alert system, but it is a parental abduction um, out of Newfoundland, Canada. Oh, wow. So, honest, like, just try to imagine for a moment here that you have to, that you share custody of your children with somebody that you once loved and trusted with all of your heart, only to have that person take them away from you and leave you wondering for the rest of your life what happened to them out of spite. This is yeah. a horrible thought that most of us will never have to experience the reality of. However, for a mother in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, this is a reality that she has to live and has lived every single day since November 9th, 1996. Hmm. Diane Saunders has to wake up every day with the unknown of what happened to her three boys. Where are they? Are they dead? Are they alive? Are they out there somewhere? It's unfathomable. Fathomable. Uh as a mom of a boy as a mom of a boy like this is my biggest fear yeah That's what i had to say <laughs> yeah i should have warned you about this this is going to yeah. be a, a tough one for you mama bear yeah okay get uncomfortable get, get uncomfortable, uncomfortable. Yes. she may never get answers it's been 26 oh. years and counting and the whereabouts of diane's three children and the man that took them still remains unknown I hope to goodness one day, one day. Yeah. I have hope. I have hope. Yeah. And this is why it's important for us to highlight these older cases that like um, the majority of people feel like that this case is, is essentially solved. However, for Diane and for the family and for the people that loved these boys, it's, it's not going to be until they get the answers of where they are, whether they're alive or they're dead. It, it doesn't, it, it honestly, it's a fine line at this point, but it's, it's going to be something that weighs heavily on them until they get the, the answers that they're looking for. So that's why it's so important that we highlight these older cases that people have long forgotten. Because I guarantee you the families will never forget. Peninsula, approximately 12 <laughs> kilometers north of the capital city of Newfoundland, which is St. John's. And it is part of St. John's metropolitan area. For those of you unfamiliar with Newfoundland and Labrador, 
It is the most eastern province of Canada and is broken into two parts. A larger mainland. Sorry? Have either one of you guys gone there? Oh, absolutely. That's where my family's from. My dad's side. Oh, yeah. A yeah. dumb question. I, I went there for two weeks. It's absolutely well, beautiful. My stepdad is from there. No, it is. Honestly, it's, in my opinion, and I'm totally biased, it is one of the most beautiful places in Canada. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. It's such a, the entire, like, new province of Newfoundland itself are the kindest, most welcoming, like, like people that you'll ever meet. Like I have friends from here in Calgary that have been, which is we're in Western Canada here, um, who have never been to the East Coast and they'll go to Newfoundland and be like, yeah, these like random people brought us into their home and fed us. Oh like, yeah, friendliest place in yeah. Canada. Absolutely. I will not give them points for whether. For whether. No, absolutely not. Boy. That was really loud. Yeah. And the island of Newfoundland, which is only accessible by plane or boat. Uh, St. John's, which is the capital, is located on the eastern coast of Newfoundland. The island of Newfoundland. So now that you guys can get a little bit of a visual of what Newfoundland is like. Mm -hmm. um, Diane Boland and Gary O'Brien uh, had between them three sons. Adam Matthew O'Brien who in 1996 was 14 years old, Trevor Anthony Thomas O'Brien, who was 11, and Mitchell Gary Marcus O'Brien, who was only four. Uh, Diane had custody, like uh, custody of the, all three boys, while Gary was granted access one day a week, which was Saturday, with his children. They had a very nasty separation, um, I wasn't able to find a whole lot of detail on that, but it was pretty, pretty volatile. Um, there was, uh, he would, Gary would constantly threaten Diane uh, as he's very unstable. Um, he was described as abusive, uh, mentally unstable, and would often threaten Diane, telling her she would never see her children again. Although these threats were alarming to most, they were believed to be empty threats, or so everyone thought, until November 9th, 1996. Empty until they're not. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Gary contacted his ex-wife, Diane. Sometime before November 9th, he contacted Diane and told her that he wanted, that she should have the boys ready for him to pick up November 9th, which was the Saturday. Uh, Diane had told him that the youngest, Mitchell, was unwell and that she felt he should stay with her instead of going to Gary's home for their regular scheduled visit. Gary was adamant that all three boys come to his home in Torbay. And as it was part of the custody agreement, Diane obliged. She could never have known what would happen next as what was thought to be empty threats would become a reality. Uh, so he arrived at the house he picked up the boys at approximately 8.30 p.m. which side note was the day after Diane's 39th birthday oh. Diane oh. received a phone call from Gary Gary told Diane that the boys would not be coming home and that if she or anyone tried to gain access to his home it was rigged with explosives set to detonate if anyone attempted to enter 
he told she would know what life would be like without her boys on her next birthday. Diane asked for the boys, and all Gary said was later before hanging up. Oh, my God. Diane's sister, who was visiting Diane at the time, heard the call and immediately contacted the RCMP. When officers arrived at the home of Gary O'Brien, they found that it was indeed wired with two 400-pound tanks of propane ready to detonate. What? The house, uh, he was an electrician, by the way, but the house and surrounding area would have been obliterated. If so not, even, not even just their house, like neighboring houses. The thing, well, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, um, Newfoundland isn't quite like here. The houses aren't on top of each other. There's space between them, but it could have done some serious damage. Uh, the officers gained access to the home and it was empty. Not Gary nor the boys were in the house. All in any attempts to locate Gary and the three boys were unsuccessful and their whereabouts remain unknown to this day. 26 years later. Uh, so over the course of the last 26 years, in 1997, one year after the boys were kidnapped by their father, and never seen again, the engine of Gary's 1989 Ford Tempo was found 10 kilometers off the coast of Flat Rock Cliffs in Redhead Cove on the east coast of Newfoundland. Did you drive it off a cliff? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Just the engine was found. No what? other parts of the vehicle, no evidence that the children at, or Gary were in the car. Just the engine was found. That's weird. So random. It is definitely weird. That's very weird. Yeah. Like why? Like they, I assume, searched the whole area. Yeah. So Diane suspects that. Obviously, she's a, a mother that wants answers, but she thinks that it was it was. The engine itself was put there by Gary to throw off the investigation. Because in 1998, so two years later, an anonymous woman reached out to the tip line. Uh, it was a woman from Thunder Bay, Ontario. She told investigators that she had babysat for Gary. And she was able to provide intimate details of the family and the boys' unpublished nicknames. Therefore, the tip is considered credible at Thunder Bay, approximately 4,117.6 kilometers from Tour Bay. And on Canada's mainland is the last known whereabouts of the three missing boys and Gary. However, super sus, this unknown woman remains unknown to this day. She never provided information of who she was other than the fact that she was in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and she never contacted investigators again. And investigators' attempts to contact her or locate her have been unsuccessful. Question. Really? Yes. How, how did she contact the police again? Like, um, I'm assuming... That based on the fact that she didn't have to give information, she uh, she did it through an anonymous tip line. 
why would she choose to remain anonymous? Why would she never contact them again? But if she wasn't telling the truth, sorry, why was she able to give such detail? And why would she, what would she have to lose by coming forward and telling them who she was or giving them more information? I just can't understand like what the thought process is here. It's so frustrating that this anonymous woman apparently has information on the whereabouts of these three boys and that's it like she just drops off the face of the earth yeah it's frustrating and it's how does somebody just drop off the face of the earth diane has never stopped looking for her boys and she never will she believes they're still alive and that one day she could be reunited with them uh gary's like even gary's own sister has come forward and believes that they're no longer among the living. Diane is the only, pretty much the only person left that believes that they're still alive. That's so sad. You know, and as a mother, you have to hold that hope, you know, yeah, like exactly. you, that's what keeps you going and keeps, you know, I, I get that for sure. Yeah. In 2011, Diane met with, Prime Minister at the time, Stephen Harper, to raise awareness about her sons and other missing children. Diane told him that she believed Adam, Trevor, and Mitchell might be living in a cult-like community or have been brainwashed and unable to contact her. Because at the time of their disappearance, they were old enough that they would remember their lives in Newfoundland and they would remember their mom. Yeah. Um. I don't want to diminish her hopes of finding her sons alive, but the fact remains that it's now 2022. Adam would be 40, Trevor yeah. would be 37, and Mitchell would be 31 years old. Yet no That's one has come life. with a credible tip since the anonymous woman in 1998 claiming that she had seen him, them in Thunder Bay. But hope should never be lost, because as Christy mentioned... It's pretty much all that I'm sure it's all that Diane has left. Yeah, it's a driving force to keep her going. Sure. Yeah. So this case remains unsolved. The National Center of Missing and Exploited Children have created many age-progressed photos of the boys, which I will include in, um, which I will post on our socials. Uh, the most recent one is from 2017. On the website, CanadaUnsolved.com, the missing reports are listed of the three boys as well as Gary, and I'm going to share those with you guys as well. So first we have Adam Matthew O'Brien, who was born in 1982 and was 14 at the time of his abduction by his father. He was described as a white male with brown hair, blue eyes, and was last known to be 5'3 and 100 pounds. He was last seen wearing black and white Adidas, uh, Adidas pants with stripes, black and white Adidas runners, a black and white Adidas jacket with stripes, and a green shirt. He also had clear braces on his top teeth, and today he would be 39. Trevor Anthony Thomas O'Brien, was born in 1985 and was 11 years old at the time of his abduction. He was described as a white male with brown hair, blue eyes, and was at the time four foot eight and 70 pounds. 
He was last seen wearing blue denim pants and a black and white, a black and white Adidas runner. He would have turned 37 just this past May 8th. Mitchell Gary Marcus O'Brien was born in 1991 and was four at the time of his abduction. He, was just, he is described as a white male with brown hair, brown eyes, and was last known to be three feet, one inches tall, 49 pounds. He was last seen wearing black and white sneakers, blue denim pants, and a blue turtleneck. Today, Mitchell would be 30. And last but not least, Gary Joseph O'Brien, wanted by the police and Interpol, was 40 years old at the time he abducted his three sons in 1996. He was described as five foot 10 with blue eyes, gray hair, and was 132 pounds. He also had a mustache and a false tooth. He was a smoker and is described as quiet, introverted, and resourceful, as we could have guessed from his makeshift explosive yeah. device. Kind of terrifying. Yeah, he is known to frequent swimming pools in arcades. He has a history of violence, psychiatric problems, and suicidal tendencies. He would be 65 today. Obviously, if they're still among the living, or if they remained among the living for a little while after their abduction, they would be wearing different clothes, and they would have very different physical appearances. However, in the event that they met their end, on or around November 9th, 1996. The details of what they're wearing could be detrimental in the discovery of their whereabouts today. I was listening to an episode of Dateline podcast this week where a child was allegedly kidnapped from a carnival and was later found murdered. A blanket that had been found where the body was discovered was put in an evidence locker and not given a second thought until 25 years later when they asked a family member if they recognized the blanket, and they did, which blew the case. I, I remember this episode. I, was holding it. I watched it too. I was so blown away. It's it could be as simple as walking through the woods and coming across a sneaker, like in that case, finding the Ninja Turtle sneaker. Well, and mm -hmm. and like until you know, you don't actually know. So exactly. You can't really say you know what i mean yeah Christy. can i make a point here i that just like like how many times are you out and about and you just see a child's shoe and you're like oh a child lost its shoe like happens all the time happens to em all the time you know if she falls off when we're on a walk or something like that i'm gonna look at these lost shoes socks jackets whatever so differently now absolutely you're gonna be googling them every time oh my god i'm gonna take pictures yeah um actually there's a great website for that i quoted it up above canada unsolved and there's also um uh what is it missing children canada where it has all of the descriptions and stuff listed and you can just go on there and um, search for that specific article of clothing and maybe help solve some cases. That's crazy. I didn't know that that existed. I will share all of that detail in our show notes as well as on our socials. If you, our listeners, have any information of the whereabouts of Adam Trevor Mitchell 
or Gary O'Brien. You can contact St. John's RNC at 709-729-8000 and reference case number 96-30299. Or here's where we go back to the tip above. You can contact Crime Stalkers at 1-800-2222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. Or online at www.canadiancrimestoppers.org slash tips. Crime Stoppers provides anonymous tipping. Or last but not least, you can email the National Center of Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains at Canada Missing dash Disparus Canada, so that's D-I-S-P-A-R-U-S Canada at rcmp-grc.gc.ca and reference case number 1996006630. I will include all of these in our reference notes. And I will also provide the photos the progression photos on our socials as well. That's all I have today on this case. But I went I down believe, a rabbit hole with this one. Yeah, I can't believe this anonymous woman. Yeah. Because you also have to look at the other side of it. it. It could be somebody that was close to the family that maybe was trying just to help him or maybe they were just trying to be assholes because, you know, people don't need reasons to be assholes. No. Just one more thing. The uh, other website that I was talking about is missingkids.ca. That lists, that has an entire, like a database of all missing children in Canada. There is also one, of course, for the United States, which is missingkids.org. O-R-G. That's the case of the missing wow. O'Brien children. I think that's so sad. The unfortunate sad reality is that they likely um, are no longer among the living and haven't yeah. been since 1996. It is, you know, speculation. I oh, found myself on Reddit while um, oh, researching the case. Yeah, and. People make some good points that it's weird to me that just the engine was found. They were able to link it back to the car through serial numbers. But with that being said, I mean, we don't know for sure that at the time of like at the time that the kids were like that, that specific in engine was even in the car. Mm -hmm. That's and sure enough. Also, where is the rest of the, where exactly. is the rest of the car that went with the engine? Yeah. Somebody who is local to Torbay or the, the area, Redhead Cove, um, described it as a very, like, rough area of ocean because it literally was off of a cliff yeah. down into the ocean is where they found the engine. And it is possible that the rest of the car just washed out into the sea. You know, that's a really good point because I forgot that is an ocean. So yeah. it could be that 
maybe that he did it's something as simple he drove it off the cliff with the th- uh, four of them I guess it would be in yeah. there and the ocean did what it did and yeah. you know it just mysterious things are washed up from the ocean all the time so for me i i feel like it's just like he's so resourceful like uh, rigging up this contraption type bomb situation with his propane tanks to me it sounds like i feel like it's a red herring that's exactly what diane thinks yeah that the engine that he specifically placed the engine there to throw off the investigation as he did by rigging the house of the explosion explosions to throw off the investigation because while they were busy trying to figure out that makeshift bomb he was escaping with the children yeah well and the thing that's scary is that those bombs were actually in fact real yeah that right there tells you the mindset he had he wasn't in the mindset of oh i'm going to take these kids to the carnival yeah yeah the worst part was is that he he did it out of spite like he actually said to her that he's going to show her what it's like to live without her kids and she's had to every day for the last 26 years just because fuck you bud And you know what, like we were talking early in the episode about how, you know, unfortunately, you know, this is a court order that you have to adhere by and much to your dismay, you still have to bring your kids over to your exes for their allotted time, their court appointed time, right? Mm -hmm. And however, like you look at at the other side of it is like how many, when children are murdered, what is the statistics where like the percentage of the murders are done by their parents right like child abuse cases it's usually it's usually a parent that's involved in that right and then it escalates with that child or you know so it's it's a double-edged sword because you have to abide by the court order but you know in your heart of hearts that this person is dangerous and shouldn't be around your children what do you do stricter laws would help with that i mean i think that's gonna come from within right yeah thing that i want to bring up too is in this case um the o'brien case here is that um as i described the island of newfoundland earlier is that in order for him to have gotten the kids to thunder bay ontario like they suspect that he did because right now they they have that tip as a credible tip and have Thunder Bay, Ontario, as their last known location, he wouldn't have been able to get over to the mainland without being on a ferry. And nobody saw him. There was no, like, he wasn't, like, there was no registry of him on the ferries. Like, I've been on those ferries, and you can't just walk on them without giving, like, your freaking selling your soul to them. Yeah. It's like clean almost. They're fun, though. I do like fairies. I love them. I want to go to Newfoundland so bad. I miss it. We went to one of those, um, the thing with the, there's like a whole, what are they called? It's really good about me. There's a Netflix documentary on them. They're like that weird church thing and really secretive. They have, um, I got to look it up now because it's in Newfoundland. I went to one of them in Newfoundland and it was, so you're not supposed to touch this part because it's like sacred. I oh. might have put on it anyway. So like a secret society or something? Yeah, it's like a secret society. Oh, that's gonna really make oh, me mad. 
Stonemasons. That's what I was thinking of. I was like, Stonemasons. So they have a place in Newfoundland uh, that they made their own, and we got a tour of it. And wow, beautiful, weird, creepy, beautiful. They they had like a basement where they would put people down there. It reminds me of the Simpsons. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. All right. So thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Homebrew Murder Crew. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Megan. That was excellent. Yeah, I um, I'm gonna hug my little boy a little tighter tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'm For sorry. Sure. I know these yeah. children's ones are always really tough. It's tough. We can't just sit back and pretend it doesn't happen. We have to bring light to it, right? Exactly. It's like that's why yeah, our motto is get uncomfortable. So exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You can find us on our socials. We are on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. We are on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. And we're on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also email us any questions or cases you might want sent, or sorry, that you might want us to cover on the podcast. Our email is homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye. 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 I love you.